I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, as the world focuses on the invasion of Ukraine, how has war shaped our history, our lives, and permeated our culture? Look at our language in politics. Politicians will talk about a war on something, talk about a political campaign. These are terms that we use very freely. Um, we talk about mobilizing to do something. These are analogies and metaphors that come from war. And I think it shows the, the impact of war on our own ways of thinking and our, on our own cultures, even when we're not aware of it. And later, Rabbi Steve Leader on the feeling of helplessness in the presence of evil. There are Goliaths in the world. There are people who lead not from humility and decency and kindness, but for themselves. And when such a person or such a nation says it's out to destroy you, you really don't have options. You have to summon the courage and reach out to your friends and fight back. Why we fight and how war has shaped us. Coming up on Life Examined. Like many of you listening today, I've been shocked and horrified by the scenes coming from Ukraine. Innocent people driven from their homes, families torn apart, bombs targeting homes and infrastructure, death and destruction in Europe unimaginable just a week ago. And it's made me wonder, in a modern and advanced society, are wars still inevitable? Are they just a part of the human condition, as if woven into our DNA? And can understanding how past conflicts have shaped us give us a better understanding of what we're witnessing in Ukraine? In her book called War, How Conflict Shaped Us, acclaimed author and professor of history Margaret McMillan explores the history and nature of human conflict. Well, Margaret McMillan, welcome to Life Examined. Very nice of you to invite me. We're all making sense of this collectively, watching the invasion of Ukraine. You have spent years researching a a really important book about war, the impacts on us globally. And I I just wonder how you've been sitting with, with watching this conflict unfold. I think probably like a lot of us with shock and, and a feeling of disbelief, um, I feel almost as I think people must have felt in 1914 in Europe, where they'd come to think that Europe was so progressive, so stable, so integrated economically, that it would never have another major war. And here we are, a war in in the middle of Europe, um, using weapons which we didn't think we would see in Europe ever again. I'm, 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 as I say, I'm, I'm shocked and, and in disbelief, but of course we have to believe it because the pictures keep coming in and it is not going to end well, I think. There is something about the way that we witness war now, which is that we see it almost live streaming on our televisions or we see it through uh, social media. I mean, that to me, it just seems that we're, we're all spectators now in this, which I find very strange and disheartening and confusing. Well, it is. And, and, and we see interviews with people standing on the streets of, of Kiev or other Ukrainian cities who've just been under shell fire and they're trying desperately to get some food or we see people trying to get onto trains. Um, what I think has also happened because of the rapidity and the pervasiveness of communications is fighting to establish the narrative for both sides has now become extremely important. I mean, I think the Ukrainians have been trying and with considerable success to get their story out. And the Russians, of course, have been trying to put out another story. And so the use of what's going on, the communication of what's going on is, is now part, a very important part of the struggle, I think. So how do you see a conflict like this one playing a role or, or part of a larger theme of the human story on this planet? This is something I know you've looked at so closely. Well, war has been with us, I think, as far back as we can tell. I mean, we, you know, the further back you go, the, the more fragmentary the historical record is. But the evidence is, and, and ancient archaeologists of the ancient world are pushing the record back further, the record is that we seem to have been organizing ourselves to do a number of things. We organize to protect our families. We organize in bands of various sorts. But we also seem to have been organizing to fight for a very long time. And whether that's to fight to defend ourselves or to fight to take things from other people um, or to do things to other people, that runs through history like a sort of thread. And I think often people don't mean to start wars, but they start them out of fear or they start them because they think they're going to win something quickly and easily, as as it appears President Putin has done in Ukraine uh, this time. 
it's as if it's almost part of our, our DNA, the way that, that humans have just come to be in the world. Well, there is a big argument about that. Is it part of our DNA? And there is the school of thought that says it's all biological, that evolution has, for some reason, left us with this aggressive tendency. And I tend not to, to agree with that, because I think when you actually look at the making of war and the organizing for war, it's enormously organized. And it's not done in the heat of the moment. It takes a great deal of planning, particularly as war gets more complicated. And it takes a great deal of training. You know, we, we have, a, of course, we have a number of instincts, but we also have a very strong instinct for self-preservation. And so you don't willingly go out to risk your life or you don't willingly go out to try and, and take the lives of other people. But that's something you have to be trained to do. That's why the military take training so seriously. And so my thought, and I may well be wrong, but my thought is that really what is more important in, in why people make war and why people can be persuaded to be in the armed forces and, and go out and, and make war on other peoples is culture. That it is the ways in which we think about others, it's the ways in which we think about ourselves, and it's the values that we instill or we promote in our own societies that will pull towards war or pull away from it. It's interesting. There is this almost certain male archetype that you see still in some American politicians. I think you would see it in the British royalty uh, as the young men, as they would ascend, would be expected to spend a year or two in the Royal Navy or to go do a tour in the U.S. Uh, in a war or go through some type of uh, academy. Um, it's still actually quite potent and around us the more I sit with this idea. It's not as if this stuff has gone away. No, and I think it is. I mean, again, we, we can talk about why it tends to be men more than women, but there is this sort of masculinity or type of masculinity, which is related to the sort of virtues and the qualities and the, well, they may not be virtues, but the qualities that you need for war. And I think you can see it in Vladimir Putin. I mean, look at the stress he places on his own physical fitness. He's always being portrayed hunting, shooting, um, dealing with animals um, with his shirt off. You know, there's a kind of, of masculinity which says that unless I'm you know, really tough and prepared to go and, and fight, then I'm not really a man. And I think that even in many ways in pop culture, yeah, in the way that when I go exercise, I probably tell myself I feel like a warrior, at least for a moment, or we uh, extol the great athletes around us uh, that continue to perform in such a ways. So that that's still around as well, isn't it? I think it permeates uh, many cultures. And I think if you look at our language, um, in politics, politicians will talk about a war on something. They'll talk about a political campaign. Um, you know, these, these are terms that we use very freely. Um, we talk about mobilizing to do something. These are analogies and metaphors that come from war. And I think it shows the, the impact of war on our own ways of thinking and, our, and our, on our own cultures, even when we're not aware of it. Wars have also been very fascinating because uh, as much destruction as they've caused, we've also seen really important developments out of them. And it, we don't want to say for the positive, but really it has been for the positive a number of times. What are some examples that you pointed to in your book? Well, this is something that, that tends to get me into trouble because when I point to these things, I, I will get, and I understand it, I'll get a grieved email saying, how can you say there's anything good about war? And I try and make the point, perhaps not well enough, that I'm not saying war is a good thing, but that war can sometimes produce unintended consequences. I mean, if we think of the recent COVID pandemic, no one's going to say that's a good thing, but we may learn from it and we may be doing things better as a result of it. And I think this is what war can do. Um, there's a very interesting book by Walter Scheidel called The Great Leveler, who argues, as does Thomas Piketty, the, the French economist, that the great wars of the 20th century actually brought about great, greater social cohesion than a number of countries and leveled the extremes between the rich and the poor. And that's why he calls it the great leveler. Uh, the position of women changed as a result of, of great wars often. I mean, in the First World War, British women, for example, would ask to do and had to do the sort of jobs that, that men had been doing because the men were all going off to fight. And the government, parts of which had opposed giving the vote to women before the war, came around to the view that since the women had contributed so much, they had a right to participate by voting in society. Um, things like advances in medicine, penicillin, an example I often use, which was discovered before the Second World War. I mean, it was known how to make it, and it was known that it would cure incurable diseases, incurable infections, but it was simply too expensive to make. 
and then the war started and suddenly expense was not the issue anymore. And penicillin was developed on a very large scale and of course has saved, I think, literally millions of lives. You mentioned earlier the the just this innate instinct in us, that of self-preservation, and that war brings that right to the surface. It becomes the most important thing that that we can handle. And and therefore I think that's that's what you're talking about is that there is this amazing urgency in these moments for things to change or things to get done, which may not have in just normal times, I suppose. I think that's one of the fascinations of war. I mean, I think we are fascinated by war, but whether we disapprove of it or approve of it, I mean, every time I go into a bookshop, I am struck by how many books there are on war. Yeah. Now, that section is, is always big. There are far fewer books on peace. Um, and I think one of the things that fascinates us is that people will do things in war it brings out the worst and the best in human nature. And I think we're seeing this in Ukraine today, that yes, the instinct for, for, for self-preservation is strong, but we also see people saying, there's something more important than my life. And, and we're seeing this in Ukraine today. I mean, I've been very moved by the interviews with Ukrainians of all ages, men and women, saying, well, it's my decision, I'm gonna stay here, and if I get killed, well, that's what happens. And I think there is something about um, war which, which brings out this, this side of human nature, the, the altruism, the willingness um, to, to, to die for others or to die for a cause. Again, that's not to defend war, but it is something that happens, and it probably doesn't happen that much in ordinary life in civilian society, although you will see it in times of crisis. And I think certain professions, fire, firefighters, for example, exemplify, exemplify that sort of attitude. I mean, they're prepared to risk their lives um, for something they believe is important. And obviously, there have been moments in which it's been for greater social goods, and then there's been um, also Nazi regimes, right, that symbolize the exact opposite of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the instrument of war is used for good and evil, and no war is without evil, I think. Um, the Second World War, we like to think, was won by the right side, uh, the United States and, and, and Britain and, and its, uh, their allies. But even we, on the right side, committed what I think were great evils, um, you know, the mass area bombing of, of Germany was and still is highly contentious. And we were, of course, allied with one of the greatest tyrannies in the world in the Soviet Union. Right. So no war is morally pure. Um, but I think you can say that some causes are better than others. There have been arguments made um, by Steven Pinker at Harvard and, and others that we are living actually in the most peaceful of times and that uh, it's almost an aberration when there is a conflict like this. Do you think there's truth to that? I wonder. I mean, it's it's a very interesting argument and he supports it with lots of statistics, which I think have been challenged. I mean, his argument has certainly not gone without challenge. And it depends which part of the world you're looking at. We, in, in what some people call the peaceful zone, the Americas, uh, much of Europe, um, well, pretty much all of Europe until now, um, a lot of Asia, have been free from war. But lots of the world hasn't been. And so if you live in the Middle East, if you live in um, Somalia, if you live in Libya, you would not be feeling um, that war is something that's gone away. And I think, you know, we, we have perhaps got too used to the idea that we're never going to see a war again which is, again, why we're so shocked by what's happening in Ukraine today. I, I would love to know whether Steven Pinker is still thinking that, make, thinking that today, and I'd, I'd love to know what he thinks about what's going on at the moment. It's a, it's a great point. And it, it brings up this question of how one understands the worlds uh, in the eras in which they grew up, uh, if you grew up in a relatively peaceful period without war versus those that grew up in very heavy conflict periods. How does that shape the, this, the psyche or the culture moving forward? Oh, I think it makes a great difference. Um, you know, I think if you grow up in a world that is peaceful, you tend to think of set war as something that is very far away. And that's been true for a lot of people in this peaceful zone of the world. If you grow up in one of the more dangerous parts of the world, if you grow up where, where empires clash, for example, or great powers clash in, in much of the Middle East, in Central Asia, um, of course, in Afghanistan, then I think you, you don't have such a rosy view. Um, you are perhaps more prepared psychologically for the prospect that, that war is something that could happen at any moment. How do we make sense still of this idea of, of taking of human life for certain gains as just, a, as just a, something to, to be with and understand? I, I wonder if you thought about that at all when you were writing. I have. And, and you know, I think when you study a subject such as war, you tend to think, what would I do? If I, were, if I were in such a situation, what, what would I be thinking? And 
I think, you know, for a lot of people, the taking of another human life is, is something abhorrent. I mean, there will always be, I think, a few people in this world who, who, who want to take other lives. But I think for most people, the taking of another life is not something they want to do, which again is why the training is so important. Because what it's doing in a way is overcoming that natural abhorrence. I mean, be, there was a rather controversial study done of American soldiers in, in the Second World War in the Pacific. It's been challenged, but the author concluded that a lot of the soldiers in the front lines who were ordered to attack the Japanese or defend against the Japanese weren't actually firing their guns. And I think, you know, there is, I think, a strong disincentive, or not disincentive is the wrong word, a strong, a strong feeling that you shouldn't take another life. But I think what happens in war is for various reasons you overcome that feeling or you're pressured to overcome it. Sometimes, I mean, discipline in certain armies, I mean, the Soviet Union in the Second World War um, shot a lot of its own soldiers for failing to obey orders. So sometimes it's the fear of what might happen to you that will drive you into battle. And sometimes it's ideology. You know, people will die for a cause and they're, they're prepared to kill others and risk their own lives, lose their own lives, because they think there's something bigger and more important. Yeah. And I guess there's other really interesting examples, maybe in the First World War, when soldiers would greet each other on Christmas Day on the front lines. Did you ever come across those as well? Yes. There's, there's, and I think you know, there's, there's been a lot of, of discussion of them and research into them. And I think it's quite true. And it wasn't just Christmas 1914, which we thought for a long time. It was other Christmases as well, that there were parts of the line where people would just stop firing and very cautiously and very carefully they'd come out of their trenches and they'd meet in the middle in no man's land um, one one on one occasion they played football they'd sing hymns together or sing christmas carols together and i think you also got a sort of um, an understanding on certain parts of the line in the first world war even when that sort of thing wasn't happening that you wouldn't actually bother to shoot at the other side as long as they were doing things like dragging in the bodies of those of their comrades who'd been killed it was sort of an unwritten understanding and in a lot of the literature from the First World War, and it's any war, what is so interesting is the fellow feeling that a lot of soldiers have, or a lot of military have, for those on the other side. You know, so often you get people saying, you know, we felt sorry for them. They were like us. They were caught up in this awful thing. We just had to do what we had to do. You mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you didn't expect to see something like this in your lifetime. And, and I wonder how we, whether it's psychologically, philosophically, historically, really understand what we think is this, this question of evil, if there's such a thing in the world, and, and how we make sense of it. I think there is evil. Um, and I'm no theologian. Um, I'm not an ethicist or a philosopher. But I think we have to recognize that there are people who commit acts that are contrary to all humanity, which are evil in themselves, their intentions are evil, and I think it's a concept we, we need to grapple with. I mean, we're uncomfortable saying it because it sounds like a sort of, um, I don't know, some, some you know, holy roller preacher or something. But, you know, I think it is something that actually exists. And I think when we're dealing with war, I think it is something that we have to bring in those who can make some sort of sense out of how we're thinking about it, which is why the study of war should not just be left to historians who specialize in it, although they add much. It should not just be left to the military. It's something we should all be engaged in and be discussing. I've been speaking with Margaret McMillan, author of War, How Conflict Shaped Us. We really appreciate the time, Margaret. Thank you. I, thank you very much. Those were very nice and, and, and quite often difficult questions. Once again, that was Margaret McMillan author, historian, and professor emeritus at Oxford University. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. You can find all our past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and check us out on the KCRW app. In just a moment, we'll be back with a full look at what it means to return from war and how other cultures brought their warriors home. That's after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Margaret McMillan say that historians and military experts shouldn't be the only ones to study the nature of war. 
and that theologians, ethicists, and psychologists also play an important part. Unlike a bullet wound, trauma from war can manifest itself silently within the body for years. So did our ancestors and other cultures have a better understanding of healing from the trauma of war? Edward Tick is a psychotherapist, poet, and author of several books on war and healing. They're called War and the Soul, Warrior's Return, and The Practice of Dream Healing. His latest book is a collection of poems called Coming Home in Vietnam. Edward Tick, welcome to Life Examined. Honored to be with you. Thank you for having me. What does war do to someone? You use the idea even of, of how it can damage or, or wound a soul. And I, I'm curious as to what what you've witnessed and what all of this means. Well, thank you for the, the question. And it, it's a big one, but uh, I'll try to condense it. Uh, we know now that... Um, the invisible wounds of war from today are now called post-traumatic stress disorder and moral injury. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder was a diagnosis created in 1980 uh, after much um, advocacy and protest by Vietnam veterans, by Holocaust survivors, and by women survivors of sexual violence. They all saw the same characteristic wounding, and finally the psychology field caught up and gave it this modern name. However, we know of more than 80 names this has been called since ancient times and what we understand is war trauma um, appears everywhere it's in the bible it's throughout the bible it's in ancient greek and roman history and mythology uh, traditional cultures around the world know of this wound and they had their names and their ways of healing it so uh, it's really uh, these wounds are inevitable in warfare and especially under the modern uh, conditions of warfare where people don't often or uh, don't do not feel like they're fighting a necessary war for a just cause. Mm. Our veterans right now viewing this war are very upset and they are re-traumatized. And at the same time, they're saying the Ukrainians have a just cause. Some of our veterans want to go over and fight with the Ukrainians oh. because it's just and because they feel like their wars were not just. Uh, and so they have what we now call moral injury from doing things in countries that they felt were wrong and unjustified and unnecessary. So uh, PTSD and moral injury are inevitable consequences of combat and war. And we do, have, uh, unfortunately, a very poor job of bringing our warriors home and giving them the understanding, the help, the, uh, the support that they need. Now, I do talk about this as a soul wound. Um, we translate it as post-traumatic stress disorder. Since we have the acronym PTSD, I also translate it as post-traumatic soul distress. Soul distress, that is that every aspect of our being, body, mind, heart, soul, community connections, ability to be intimate, belief um, and trust in life itself, relations to uh, to the larger community and nation, relations to authority, all of those are utterly transformed um, by the war experience. All of those are essential conditions of our humanity that are uh, wounded and distorted by war. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm presenting that PTSD and moral injury are inevitable under modern conditions, made worse by the poor um, ways that we bring our veterans home and don't treat all of these dimensions. Uh, and we should not be naive that war always causes these kinds of uh, problems and difficulties. And every one of us is an inheritor of transgenerational trauma from, from parents, grandparents, wherever they came from and why they came here. And also from American history, because our nation has been at war, well, really since uh, the Puritans and the Pilgrims arrived and went to war against the Native peoples. So uh, we, over 200, well, 240 year history, we only have about uh, 20 or 30 uh, years, literally, of peacetime without armed conflict. Yeah. We've had so many small wars that people don't even know about. I'm really curious also in the, in the historical part of this, you, you know, you've looked at the idea that wars have been going on for, for thousands of years. How did... How did warriors or those wounded by war, what, what was the idea of healing in antiquity or in other cultures? It sounds like this has always been something that a, a society or culture has had to deal with. 
Uh, yes, that's correct. And other cultures and so other times and places and some modern cultures have been much wiser and uh, more compassionate in healing. Historians count more than 15,000 wars in the last 5,000 years. So humanity has been dealing with this forever. Now, that being said, uh, many, many sources teach us what other cultures did for their warriors. So, for example, in the Bible, Moses ordered all Israelite warriors coming back from a single battle, not from a year's deployment, not from a world war, but from every battle, they were ordered to spend a week before they come home in outside their villages in uh, purification and healing practices. And they immersed in waters, they, their priests attended them, they deeply purified, they returned to their spiritual life, uh, they talked among themselves, of course, they had what today we would call talking circles, gathering the veterans together, where they can tell their stories before they bring them home. Wow. This is only one small example, but there are so many. Can you give us some more? Yeah, yeah, please, I'd love some others. Okay. People know about supposedly the war dance among Native Americans, and uh, the actually Native American peoples had extreme means for healing for more. Uh, the Sioux, the Lakota name for post-traumatic stress disorder in their language was Narina Peapi, which means the spirits left him, the spirits left. So they understood this as a spiritual wound and they had a quite significant um, spiritual and religious and communal practices to restore the spirit, including going on vision quests, uh, going through sweat lodge ceremonies uh, to take the war out of people, um, other forms of purification. One Korean War nurse I worked with who was uh, Coastal Salish, when she came home from the Korean War, her entire tribe met her at the airport. They didn't let her go home. The elders said, we're taking you out into the woods with us for three months to take the war out of you because you can't go home with the war still in you. It's mm -hmm. too dangerous for you and your loved ones. We see this crisis all over the country when uh, people are rushed home without any homecoming practices, without what we would call reverse boot camps to take the war out of them and to bring healing. And so instead we have uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse and criminal behavior and um, and substance abuse and all kinds of signs that the soul is wounded and still in anguish and not able to come home. And really a very good way of understanding PTSD is to understand that the mind, the heart and the soul are still operating as if in the they are in the combat zone, even though the person and the, their body has been brought home. We have to bring the entire person home, including mind, heart, and soul, and fully integrate back into the community. Uh, and that's a betrayal. If warriors don't feel that their communities honor and support them and are helping them come home, I went and served in your name. You have to be there to help me come home. And when we're not, but we turn it over only to the VA system or practitioners like me or just some small nonprofits, it's still a moral injury. Um, that can hurt even more than the combat experience. You mentioned uh, Native American rituals. You mentioned all the way going back to the time of Moses. I was wondering if there was one more culture you could pick that you found was really fascinating and how they deal with uh, with war trauma. Oh, sure. Let me. I'll mention ancient Greece. Uh, we all know that we have the great tragedies uh, of the, the Greek theater, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. Uh, but people don't know that all three of those were those men were combat veterans and that most of the tragedies are about war and its damage and healing and that actually Greek tragedy and theater itself came out of communal healing rituals. The tragedies were written as sacred acts to achieve, to tell the truth about war, to witness to how much suffering it caused and to give tens of thousands of people at the dramatic performances, uh, most of whom were veterans, because everybody served them, uh, to give them massive communal cathartic rituals. So they didn't sit politely and just listen and then clap at the end. They cried and they screamed and they achieved catharsis during the ceremony. And uh, everybody, the entire culture was healing together through the enactment uh, of tragedy.
It is incredible. You think about the amount of training that goes to put the war into somebody, the years and years of becoming a warrior, a fighter. And that I, I think that that phrase is, is very poignant, taking the war out of somebody and how that process has just been so rushed and botched and not thought through very fully. Um, perhaps you can say a few more words about that. Uh, I've been working with our veterans for over 40 years now. I began before PTSD was even a diagnosis. And I immediately realized that um, whatever else was bothering these good people, the war was really torturing them and we had to find a way to take it out. So um, I did the best psychotherapy I could for eight or 10 years and then realized we need much more than that. And I really have been spending the last 35 or 40 years, not only doing this work, but working with other cultures, examining other cultures, uh, working directly on Native American reservations with their warriors to learn their war healing practices. I've led 19 journeys back to Vietnam once a year hmm. from 2000 until the pandemic stopped travel. Uh, but the Vietnamese do not, though the war was over there and the damage and the death was so extensive, they don't have these ongoing chronic injuries because there is so much in place in Vietnam, Vietnamese culture and spirituality that mitigates against the breakdown caused by violent trauma. What would you tell people who are watching this erupt in Ukraine and I think are stuck with this feeling of powerlessness, of hopelessness? Uh, it's, almost, it's almost paralytic. There's just nothing you can do besides maybe try and donate or you know, send messages of hope. How, how do we sit with those emotions that, that I think are very hard for people? Well, they, they are very hard for people, but let me share that as difficult as this is, uh, we do understand the concept of moral injury now. That is when we participate in or observe things that go completely against our moral and ethical cores. And that, uh, creates intense feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. So we are all being morally injured watching this and feeling like we can't do anything. And it's really important to do something. And uh, one good thing now is that the entire world, seem, almost the entire world seems uniting to support Ukraine and scream that this is wrong and trying to stop it through the United Nations and economic sanctions. So that is a response to the moral injury and it is an attempt to hold uh, Russian leadership accountable for the immoral horrors that they're causing. Mm. All that being said, it's really important to do something. So hug your family, talk to, uh, talk about it together. Don't not talk about it. Don't let this uh, material go underground. Try not to watch the news just before you go to sleep. You these images should not be the things you take into your dream life. Uh, it will disturb your, your sleep. It will um, infect your dreams. Yes, give donations. Yes, reach out to any friends or neighbors you might have. Reach out to um, Russian and Ukrainian um, or immigrant communities uh, in your region or anywhere in the country. Write letters to the editor. The, anything that feels an action aimed at moral repair rather than just sitting back and taking the moral injury. Mm. A lot of support, a lot of love. Don't let it go underground and suppress it in yourself and find some meaningful action in response, however small it is. And it doesn't even have to be direct aid to the Ukrainians, but there's too much going on that's wrong in our world. So I'm going to do something to help some destitute people and re help repair our a broken world. Well, I'd love if you could end with a poem, which is uh, an art form you believe in, one that you take part in, and I know there's one you wanted to share with us. Sure. Thank you for that invitation. Um, uh, this is from my journeys back to Vietnam. <clears throat> uh, it's written in first person, but it's the story of one of our veterans I brought back. He and his unit killed 300 enemy soldiers. They dug a mass grave and pushed all the bodies in. For four decades, he was haunted by that PTSD and moral injury, and he had nightmares of the dead screaming to him, help us, help us, return us. Finally, he went back to Vietnam with me 
We found the grave. We returned it to the local people. He had been terrified he was going to be treated as a war criminal. Instead, he was treated as a saint for bringing the souls of their loved ones back. So this poem is called Praying. The first stanza is then his 19th birthday experience. And then the second stanza is when we went back and returned the grave to the Vietnamese people. Never in my life did I pray so hard as that day at the smoking bottom of this mountain among giant boulders and fallen trees when the enemy overran our wire and sprouted like berserk rice stalks no farther away than the length of my rifle and our muzzle holes became God's wrathful eyes. Never in my life did I pray so hard until today on the cloud-crowned top of this mountain, among smiling Buddha statues and wafting incense, when their children took my hands and called me uncle, and the monks bowed to me as if I were a saint, and I embraced their dead as my true brothers, and God's loving eyes gazed through my torn and mending heart. Mm. That's the poem, and very quickly, this veteran, since that trip back, he's been back to Vietnam several times on his own. Since then, he fell in love with a Vietnamese woman. They married. They live in both countries now, and he helps support her extended family in Vietnam. And they've really, truly be, both become Vietnamese American, a unique new identity that heals both sides from the war. Yeah. So that, that much healing and restoration truly is possible. I've been speaking with Edward Tick, psychotherapist, poet, and author of War on the Soul, Warrior's Return, and The Practice of Dream Healing. Also has a book of poems called Coming Home in Vietnam. Edward, thank you so much for the time. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for your attention to this very important topic. As we grapple to understand the fear and necessity of war, we'll finish today by tackling the question of evil. And if true evil exists, how should we confront it? Rabbi Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and the author of The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. Rabbi Leader, welcome back to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be with you again. I want to start with just your own personal reflections. Um, you know, every time we try to look at a news site or turn on the TV, it's more horrendous, heartbreaking images. And I, I wonder how you've been making sense of this and how you've been doing emotionally and psychologically. Well, it's a it's a conflicting set of emotions. On the one hand, I don't think there is a, a global community less surprised and better prepared to fit this into their worldview and ethos than the Jewish people. In a way, what's happening in Ukraine is the oldest of Jewish stories and the oldest of stories. So in that sense, I, I can't say I'm surprised by the narrative or the events because it's just the next chapter. On the other hand, uh, I, I do understand differently now what it means to feel powerless in the face of that narrative. Uh, you know, I think all of us watching this from afar feel and know that in some way we should all be there. And in many ways, we can't all be there. And I, I have this, this feeling of, although doing what I can, nevertheless being a spectator when I should be uh, engaged in the battle in some way. And I think it feels to me like a lot of us are, are spectators and that this, this is, is a kind of proxy war that's being fought on our behalf between uh, autocracy and democracy and and we're kind of all hoping that it gets worked out in this somewhat limited 
arena so that it doesn't have to get worked out on a global level. Yeah. Uh, and there's some comfort in, in knowing that it may get worked out locally and also some, some you know, fear that it may not. And, and this may be a global issue, that, that this has the potential to become a world war. Uh, and, and of course, that fear exists in all of us. Can you go back to what you said just a moment ago about how, in many ways, the Jewish people are the most uh, perhaps aware in a very deep sense of these types of conflicts and dynamics? Um, what, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, Jewish history is replete with um, the David and Goliath story, the Pharaoh and Moses story. Um, the, the story of, you know, the 12 spies who go into Canaan and 10 of them come back and say, the people there are giants. And we felt like grasshoppers in front of them. And two of the 12 spies saying, we, we can, we can prevail. Um, this, this prevailing against the odds, this, this position as outsider, this, um, constant, seemingly constant confrontation with bullies, this, um, the important use of ingenuity, uh, the importance of humility in leadership. I think Zelensky is an extraordinary example of that. Um, you know, the, he's a David in the face of a Goliath. And also Jewish history is replete. In fact, the only reason I'm here to speak with you today is that we are a people that has found ways to beat the odds many times. Sometimes the odds beat us, of course. I think Hitler was a good example of that. But we are a people that has managed to be uh, resourceful, creative, to have faith in ourselves and courage in ourselves, and, and to somehow beat the odds um, more times than not. And, and that's where we, where we are today. And, you know, we are ultimately a people that privileges peace over war. Judaism is a, is a faith that sees war as an evil and occasionally as a necessary evil, but always as a last resort after having offered peace and, and never in an inhumane way that allows, um, you know, no, no option. Uh, for the besieged. So, you know, we, we see war as an, as an evil, but occasionally a necessary evil. And, you know, also kind of baked into the Jewish ethos. And, you know, I think that Ukrainians and Zelensky understand this very well. Uh, in the early 80s, Menachem Begin, when he was prime minister of uh, Israel, and you know, he was very involved in the Israeli war for independence um, and the and the war after. Uh, he, where, by the way, Israel was the underdog time and time again. He was asked by a group of American tourists when they met with him, what he believed the most important lessons of the Holocaust were for Jews. And the first thing he said, he said, the first lesson the Holocaust teaches us is that when your enemy says he plans to destroy you, believe him. And in that sense, uh, I think the Ukrainians and Zelensky understand very well, and the world is beginning to understand very well because the world has, uh, you know, a very short and limited memory that there, there are Goliaths in the world. There are demagogues. There are powerful narcissists. There are people who lead not from humility and decency and kindness and the best interest of their people, but for themselves. And when such a person or such a nation says it's out to destroy you, you really don't have options. You have to summon the courage and, uh, and reach out to your friends and fight back. How does the Jewish tradition explain this question i think of of evil you know what 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 kind of a god would create a world in which these types of things 
can happen? I, I'm curious how you wrestle with that question. Yeah, well, this is what what theologians call the, the problem of theodicy, God and the problem of evil. And for me, and, and of course, we're, we're grossly oversimplifying an entire school and world of theology. But for me, I, I would take issue with the uh, concept that this is somehow caused or controlled by God. Uh, you know, the book of Job, which I, to me, is, is the most important book in the Bible. Why? First, Job was an everyman, not a Jew, so it applies to all of us. Secondly, it is the first time that the Bible comes out and says, by the way, in the first sentence of the book, Job was a blameless man, an innocent man, that, that bad things really do happen to good people who don't deserve it. And now, in the book of Job, God is somewhat in, is in control of this, but my point of view, my faith, is that God granted us something called free will and that evil is not a God problem, is not a theological problem. It's a human problem. You know, um, Edmund Burke, when he was writing about the French Revolution, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, before we congratulate people on their freedom, we ought to wait and see what they do with it. So we have been granted free will as human beings. But before we celebrate that free will, we ought to see what we do with it. And you know, there are two kinds of freedom. There's freedom from, which is freedom from oppression, freedom from slavery, freedom from poverty, freedom from limitations. But that's really only an important freedom if it leads us to freedom to. The freedom to use our freedom from in order to uplift and liberate the oppressed. And this is a human challenge. This is a human problem. God didn't put people in the ovens in Auschwitz. Human beings did that to other human beings after they had objectified them. This is on us, not on God. What would you say that we do with so many of the things that we're talking about right now, which is a feeling of, of helplessness, of, of sadness, of wanting to do something when we feel there is nothing. I, I wonder, it, should we each feel called, morally or spiritually, to, to do something in this case? Yes. Send money. Um, let, let our political leaders know that we want, expect, and need, and I think they do understand this is a proxy battle for something much larger. Uh, this is a microcosm of, of a global macrocosm, and that we want them to do everything they can, send money, send weapons, stand up for the innocent people of Ukraine, stand up for democracy, stand up against demagoguery and narcissism. Uh, and the other thing I would say, you know, if I were to extend this beyond this crisis, which at some point will be resolved one way or the other, is there are many, many Goliaths in our lives. We all, sooner or later, stand before some giant as an individual and as a society and as a global community. Racism is a Goliath. Poverty is a Goliath. Disease is a Goliath. Uh, global warming is a Goliath. We all stand trembling before some Goliath at some point globally, and we all stand trembling at some point before a Goliath personally, a lump in our breast, a pain in our chest, uh, the, the end of a marriage, the death of someone we deeply, deeply love. We all at some point tremble before a Goliath. And hopefully we can look inward and find the inspiration uh, to, as the story goes in Goliath and David, stand up for ourselves, be resourceful, summon our inner courage, and prevail. Finally, I wonder if there's anything that you call upon in your own tradition that that does help you in, in moments of this you, you've you've given us some great passages and 
ideas. Just curious if, if there's any last things you tend to, to look upon. You know, again, um, I think a lot about Pharaoh. Putin, Putin seems a lot like Pharaoh to me. Pharaoh was a, a ruler who did not care at all about the suffering that the plagues brought to his own people until that suffering directly affected him, which was the 10th of the 10 plagues, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh was a person who had multiple opportunities, multiple off-ramps, but because of his own narcissism and sense of invulnerability became so stubborn and hard hearted that eventually he lost all of those options and finally ended drowning beneath the sea of his own cruelty and indifference. And this feels very much today like where Vladimir Putin eventually is headed. And uh, I, I think a lot about that. And I, I'd like to, to end also with a story about that, about that myth in the Bible. A thousand years later, the sages of the Talmud are talking about the celebration that took place on the other side of the sea when the ancient Israelites had crossed to freedom. They were free from slavery. Now we'll see what they do with it. And according to the sages of the Talmud, the angels in heaven were so ecstatic over this victory that they broke out into song in the heavens above. And God scolds them. God says to the angels, my creatures are drowning and you want to sing? In other words, vengeance is nothing to be proud of. Many innocent Russians, many are suffering terribly. And when this ends and when Putin crumbles beneath the weight of his own arrogance, uh, frankly, there's nothing to celebrate here. Vengeance is, is not a character trait anyone should be proud of. Um, in fact, it shows a lack of empathy that is at the root cause of all of this evil in the first place. So this is a challenge. This is a challenge to not only allow right to triumph over might, but also in that triumph to find our own humility and empathy, because that's the only road to peace. I've been speaking with Rabbi Steve Leder, senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and the author of The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. Rabbi Leder, always, always wonderful to have you on the program. Thanks for the time. Great to be with you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find Life Examined wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us, and we'll see you next week.